and welcome to Quality Blether, the Scottish Testing Group podcast, where you don't have to be Scottish or a tester to have quality conversations about quality. I'm your host, Brian Jones, and this time we have something slightly different. We have a job seeker special with my guest, Matt Drinkwater. Matt has been involved in the recruiting of quality and testing professionals for over 17 years. He also set up the Birmingham Testers Meetup and now hosts the excellent Kiwi Babble on LinkedIn. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, you've been involved in quality and testing for a long time, now, what, 17 years, something like that. And you've actually, you're a recruiter as opposed to doing it yourself, but you have done it in the past. So do you, do you want to give a little bit of background about you and what you do and how you got to where you are and maybe mention the uh, the community stuff you do with the, the meetups? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so going back to the, the mid-90s now, and it makes me sound quite old, but um, started in recruitment um, after, after finishing university. Um, someone sort of sold me the dream that this was a, a great way to um, start your career and um, sales would be a, a great um, platform to to build from whatever you decided to do in the future. And lo and behold, um, 17 years later, I, I find myself still doing um, a comparably similar job to one that I started in 2006. So um, it's, and again, I think actually it's, it's probably rare in recruitment terms to um, stick to a market, stick to the same area for, for as long as I have. So it's always been testing and, and quality assurance that I've done. Uh, which of course has changed a lot over that time and we might move on to touch on that but um yeah I've always been involved in, in recruiting people for for testing positions so why did you particularly go into the the qa and testing side i think at the time um it, it wasn't it wasn't my decision it was it was something that was um was chosen for me by um the people i worked with at the time um but i think that was really born out of the fact that Development, software development was a, a much more mature market at that at that time. Obviously, people have been writing code for 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 a, for a long time, and um, that was always a fairly obvious um, sector to recruit into. Um, but what wasn't as obvious was was recruiting for testers, because if we go back to the mid nineties, then uh, sorry, the mid noughties, excuse me, I'm not quite that old. Um, not there weren't that many testers as a proportion of all those who worked in technology. Um, but obviously over, over time that proportion has increased. So I think people spotted an opportunity to, um, to offer something which was um, a bit more specific um, and probably less, to be honest, less, less sort of competitive and less saturated than the software development market was um, in recruitment terms. Okay. So, no, quite a while ago now. It was uh, it was over ten years ago. You started the Birmingham Testers Meetup. What was the idea behind that? <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago. I think it was um, towards the end of my time working with Compute Futures around two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, um, and I um, had a relationship with a, a, a tester who who worked in in the Midlands um, called Simon Knight who. Um, was interested in a way of bringing people together 
to share ideas. Um, and I think at that time, even things like LinkedIn, it wasn't the tool it was. And there weren't that many platforms around for people to actually collaborate um, who didn't work in the same company. Um, and things like um, after work meetups, um, yeah, again, we're, we're sort of in their infancy, I think, within within tech. Um, there's certainly lots of them now. Um, but we just felt it was a good way of getting people um, getting people together in a relaxed environment to talk about work um, fairly openly um, and talk about their careers and where the industry was headed. Um, and, you know, from that, um, we've we've gone on to do i've gone on to do quite a few different types of meetup both online and in person but that was definitely how it started yeah mm-hmm. yeah and obviously from the scottish testing group point of view these meetups are a good idea because that's exactly what we do okay yeah um and since then you've um started doing qe babble on linkedin yes i have yes so it's QE Babble, you, you say. So, yeah, it's now called QE Babble. It was called QA Babble. Um, I had a, a few people suggest to me that um, I should change the title from quality assurance to quality engineering um, because they felt that um, having the word engineer in the title was more representative of the type of work that someone would do in that sort of role. Um Semantics, you know, you could you could argue, but um, I think some people felt it was fairly important to to make that distinction. Actually, um, but yeah, um, QA Babble, as it was at the time, um, started as in person meetups, and they were in London, um, where I was living and working at the time, and we did those in um, in different company offices um, all over, really, um, and those were attended by sort of up to seventy or eighty people per time we did about three or four of those a year um, and had speakers come in and, and do talks on things that were happening in the industry or or new tools or ways of working uh, and then we'd have questions at the end of the sessions um, <clears throat> those those have since moved online um, but that was really covid that drove that like a lot of things it it, yeah. it changed it changed how we work and it also changed how we sort of engage with people i think um, and we see a lot more online events now. Um, I would like to bring back the in-person events because I, I feel there's no better way of, of networking with people than actually in a room when you're standing next to them, sharing a you know a laugh and a joke and maybe a beer and, and just kind of kicking back a little bit, which you can't really do online. Um, but nevertheless there's a lot of benefits to to doing them online that you wouldn't get in person um i think one of the one of the challenges we had with in person events was that you could you could secure a venue um but if the event's free and they were always free um it would be very hard to ascertain how many people would actually turn up mm-hmm. yeah um, <laughs> so the, the the to be honest the the drop off rate um from the the sign up number was always was always reasonably high um, and i get it you know if people have had a, a tough day they might have signed up to something but they, they're going to shoot home or they're not they're not going to want to sit and talk about stuff to do with their work for another hour and a half two hours even if there is a free drink and some some nice food there um 
And the great thing about doing them online is that um, you can do it on a platform for for next to nothing, um, whether it be Zoom or, or or something else. And the videos are always available afterwards. Um, yeah. So people can watch those whenever they want, wherever they want, whether they're on the train, whether they're walking, whatever, whether they're in bed, whatever they're doing, um, they can they can absorb that content, um, which you just can't do with the in-person events. Yeah, and that's a definite benefit having that as collateral that people can can refer to again. Yeah, absolutely. So we've we've set up um, a YouTube channel now as well. So um, I think we've got um, five different events on on the channel, um, and you know those will be around um, in theory forever until 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 the channel doesn't exist anymore, and um, people can sort of pick at those and watch ten minutes here or ten minutes there to their heart's content. So. Um, yeah, I think if we can continue to get um, you know good quality speakers on who are willing to um, share their time um, for the benefit of others, then um, it's something which we're definitely going to continue to do. Mm, great, good stuff. I certainly enjoy um, listening to some of those QE Babble sessions. That's good um, to hear, yeah. I, I remember one specific one where uh, you were talking about um, whether there was a ceiling for QA and testing professionals and whether it was difficult to actually progress beyond a certain point within careers. Um, do you think that's still true? Do you think that's still uh, a valid issue that there's a, that, that bias within the industry? I think it is, yeah. Um, we did some research at the time. Um, the event, I think, was called, um, yeah, uh, QA leaders have you reached your limit um, and it spoke to the point that if you look at people who've moved into um, CTO roles only a very small percentage I think it was less than 5% had come from a quality engineering backgrounds um, and compare that with um, people from a development background I think it, the figure was more like 70% um, now some of that is because the reality is there's there there are always going to be more people in development than there are testing, but still I think the numbers are disproportionate. Um and I do think it's down to um to an extent to a bias. Um one of the reasons for doing that event in the first place was that we we noticed that there was a trend, unfortunately, that when people reached the head of quality level, um there were there were you know, less opportunities for them to to move up um, into the more senior roles. But also there was, as a proportion, less head of QA type positions available because companies are now um, managing their their testing efforts in a different way. Um, Agile means that you're not going to have siloed teams of testers, developers in the same way that you would have done previously. So QA people are now managed by... Um, it, you know, within their agile teams or pods by uh, potentially, a, you know, a product manager, maybe delivery manager, engineering manager, um, but not always necessarily reporting back into a head of a head of quality. Um, so it was an event to um, talk about where these people who'd reached that head of QA level could go with their careers. And definitely one of the routes is into an engineering manager role. Um, but those roles aren't 
you know, quite a lot of the time um, go to people who are from a software engineering background. Mm -hmm. So that's one direction that the, the industry's moved in. How do you think it, it's changed in other directions over the years? Uh, well, you, you, you had obviously the, the big shift from only having automation tools from uh, large software vendors. So going back again to the, to the, to the mid-noughties, you had tools like QTP, LoadRunner, WinRunner, um, which, which were very expensive. The licenses were incredibly expensive. I'm yes. sure you'll, you'll know better than me. And difficult to use and monoliths. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, and it, it it did a few things, I suppose, but it probably put people off adopting them because they were so expensive. Um, you know, you say they were difficult to use. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, you had all these different open source tools that came into the market. And I think that changed everything because it made automation accessible to companies of all size, all scale. So you could be a startup business and start to implement some of these tools and ways of working. Whereas previously, startup businesses, you know, far less likely to want to go off and buy a QTP license for whatever it was. I'm not going to quote a figure because I'm, I'm not too sure, but um, you could now start to bring people in and they could use Selenium or one of many other open source tools that are now now in the market. So I think with that was a massive rise in in companies um doing automation. Um and then we've sort of moved transitioned through to um defining these people as um software developers in test instead, um, which is a really interesting job title. Um because when you break it down, um, a lot of people who sit in those roles aren't actually software developers. They are principally testers, but they have learned um, to code to a certain level. Um, I think the reality is that there's very few pure developers who work in testing, um, far less than the number of people who are called a software developer in test. And that's not me trying to do them a disservice by any means. It's, um, I think it's a job title that um, was kind of like fashionable, um, and yeah, um, people people latched onto. Uh, but there's lots of other examples of that across tech. You know, not just related to QA of the fashionable job titles where, when you break it down, you know, the people aren't necessarily that, but they just called that. If it makes sense. Yeah. So, what does the market at the moment look like then? And with these changes coming in, what's what's being asked for? What's the, the primary focus for the clients? What do they want? Well, I think um, yeah. So we're, we're in we're in 2024. Um, last year was was one of the the, the most challenging years um, that I've ever seen in in technology. Um, with what happened, what happened with the economy and you know rising interest rates, inflation, um, the market really had a had a big dip, big contraction, and um, sadly a lot of people you know lost their jobs, and it meant that for me, most of the people that I spoke to were available, unfortunately, because they've been made redundant, um, and I'd never really experienced that before, even going back to like two thousand and nine um, in the financial crisis then. That was that was bad, but I, I I don't remember it being 
as um, as sort of stark as it was uh, last year with the amount of redundancies that were made. Uh, the market boomed post-COVID in 2021 when companies with all their pent-up um, requirements spent lots of money on tech and all the big tech businesses um, you know, grew massively. Uh, um, but I think even Mark Zuckerberg said that they he admitted they, they grew too fast and a lot of companies followed suit and it came back to bite them. But I think all those things together means now the market's um really for testers is really specific even more so than it was before um the reality is there's a lot of testers out there um a huge amount uh, in, in the uk and um there's not enough jobs right at the moment to um to, to put all those people into so i think um it's become a lot more of a a, a customer-led or company-led market um, where they can now um, mandate a bit more around things like hybrid working, um, which they perhaps struggled with, um, again, just the year after COVID finished, maybe 2021, where remote working was still a, a big thing. And most companies almost had to recruit remotely because that's what candidates asked for. But it's changed a lot in that time. And we've seen a big shift of people moving back into asking for two or three days a week in an office. That's quite common now. Right. Um, so that's definitely been one big change. Um, not specific to testing, but I think a big change in tech. Um, but we, yeah, with, with testing, um, obviously automation is still um, a, a huge area um, and people want those skills. Um, it's fairly rare that um, I get requirements from companies who don't ask for at least some experience of automation or, or ability to code. Um, I think companies want engineers now who have got um, a broader range of skills um, that they can they can bring to the company. Definitely. So on the automation side, um, what's the predominance of the, the tooling is it still um selenium that's supreme or are we getting more playwright and those sort of things coming in yeah i think i think more, more, more playwright more um javascript or typescript um driven um tools those are the two languages now that uh, alongside probably python um that companies are wanting to use um they um if if websites are built using those technologies, um, then it makes sense for them to conduct their automated testing um, using the same languages to mm -hmm. build the build the test. So um, the, the the JS and TypeScript um, driven tools are the ones that are definitely most prevalent at the moment. Um, if you go back a few years, you'd probably say it was the ones that used C-sharp. Um, yeah. And, and, and Java, um, but it's 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 changed, yeah, hundred percent. Okay, do you still see requirements for uh, the old monoliths, like um, whatever QTP became? <laughs> UFT. Um, UFT one. Yeah, funny enough, I did. I did have one last year actually. Um, it was through it was through a consulting company I worked with, but it, and it was um, it was actually working for a bank. Um, and I think that's probably where you'd likely see that, where in 
more of a traditional setting, um, a bigger business who have probably had the licenses for 20 years mm-hmm. and just have built up so much um, in terms of um, frameworks and stuff that they are resistant to um, to doing a big change over to something else. Um, so they, they keep buying the licenses. And um, yeah, it's one of those things that, it, it now becomes much, much harder to recruit for because there's so few companies who use it. Um, I suppose then you could make an argument for it being a, a good thing for from a candidate perspective for them to do because they would have less competition when they go for those jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. another example of that is that I used to, a, a few years ago I worked with a, a recruiter who uh, recruited for AS400 COBOL type technologies. Um, yeah, very yeah, legacy, years, very niche. <laughs> yeah, five years ago, that was legacy and niche. It's even more so now, but there's, there's still a market there. It's a very small market, but um, it, that makes it probably quite good for the, the candidates who do it because they've got um, you know less of the people to, to compete against and equally probably good for a recruiter for the same reasons. Moving on to, to candidates and um, the direction they need to move in, how what sort of advice would you give someone that's job seeking at the moment um hints and tips how to go about it how to make the most of it how to be the, the best chance of being successful yeah well yeah i think the first thing to say is it's i think it can be incredibly intimidating to be a job seeker um at the moment um linkedin um is a tool that Many people in tech now rely on, um, and certainly recruiters rely on it heavily, uh, and, and job seekers too. So it's an easy platform to use with a, a wonderful UI, and it's people pump a lot of money into it, um, and employers put a lot of their jobs on there. So it's the first place probably that most people look. It's not necessarily the best place though. So you'll look on there and you'll see a job that you like to look of, and it will have 200 applicants. One thing to note about that number is that actually that's the number of people who have expressed an interest, but it's not necessarily the number of CVs that the company's got to review because quite a lot of that number won't meet the criteria that they've set out. Um, that criteria might have some screening questions around their skills. So like how many years experience have you got in X? It might have something around their education potentially have they got a degree although that's less important than it used to be it may well have something around um their eligibility to work in the uk and, and right to work checks so that 200 number might actually only end up being 60 so the first thing to say is i wouldn't try not to let that number intimidate you um if you see a job you'd like to look at apply for it um but the i think the biggest tip i can give people is that your most likely route to finding a job probably isn't from applying to job adverts. It's by leveraging the network that you've built up over your career to that point. So it will benefit people who've been in the industry longer, definitely. But I would recommend that you sit down and look through your CV and think about all the people that you work with at all of those jobs and then establish if you don't already know where they are now and what they're doing and reach out to those people um, and explain that you, you're looking for work um, and maybe you, you need to update them on 
what you've done since you last worked together because it might well have been a long time but the relationships with those people um, mean so much um, and they're a far better way of getting a job than just applying for job adverts. So networking is key? Yes, yeah, it's, it's massive. It's massive. Um, people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I, I genuinely believe that within um, the sort of job-seeking market that it is about who you know. Um, yeah, of course, building up relationships with recruiters who who operate in your space. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be an advocate for that, aren't I? But um, it's... Um, it's a good thing to do because if you find someone who truly knows your area, wherever it is, then they should hopefully be able to give you some um, guidance on, you know, how best to position the CV. Um, and if even if they haven't got anything for you, they might be able to direct you towards people who have, whether that be as a recruiters or whether that be uh, direct companies. Um, it's definitely definitely a good route as well, of course. Yeah, you you mentioned CVs. What's the, what's the do's and don'ts with that? Because as as I've been on both sides of the fence, mm. uh, I want to see CVs that have got the detail that tell me exactly what this person's capable of. Uh, whereas you go onto the the CV sites or the um, the ones that recommend how to do a CV, and they're talking about two pages maximum, compress it down, talk about the. The qualities of you as opposed to your your technical skills what's the the best approach to that how do you mm. do you compromise between the two especially if you've got an awful lot of experience that you're trying to compress yeah that's that and that makes it really hard doesn't it because um at the end of the day if, if you've got a lot of experience then that would be one of the reasons why someone hires you so why should you have a cv the same length as someone who's got 15 years less that's uh, I, I definitely get that get that argument. Um, I think that, and, and within tech, uh, one of the um, kind of obvious things to to do might be to just write down all of the technologies that you've come into contact with. But of course, that is so difficult to define um, in a CV. You can write down that you have worked with C Sharp or you've worked. Or that you work with selenium um but how is someone going to define that on the cv so yes put some of those technologies down but focus more on what within each job what you were there to do so what the project was what the problem was um how you solved that problem and what the benefit to the company of solving that problem was um so going through like a problem solution outcome um, within the uh, responsibilities of each of your jobs. So maybe picking out two or three of those scenarios for each job. Um, because I think employers want to see people who have added genuine value. They're not just interested in the skills they've got. Of course, the skills are important because these are technical technical roles. But they're also interested in people who can actually understand the business value that they've brought to something, uh, not just the, uh, the the skills they've used. That's that's a really interesting comment. Something that I've been going on about for a long time is the skills of the tester aren't just being able to use tools, not just being able to code. It's the thinking. It's critical thinking, systems thinking. It's the understanding the the business, understanding the user 
So that that ties up very strongly with with my own views on on what a, a tester should be focused on. Yeah, I think it's it's so easy to just get in, get into a conversation around um, how many years experience you've got of using a certain tool or technology or um, programming language, um, and that that isn't a you know that isn't a bad thing because yeah, if you've got lots of experience and that's that's good um, and that will be one of the the vehicles that helps you into your next job, but it's actually how you've used that. So showing people that understanding in the CV um, is is really important. In terms of like the length of the CV, you know, I'm not one who who sort of says, well, you know, it has to be a two page limit. But I think you need people need to use their common sense and realise that, um, yes, every every place you send your CV, they probably won't just have yours. So it does need to be succinct. Um, and you do need to be quite punchy in terms of how you deliver your message. Okay. So what sort of mistakes do the candidates commonly make and how can they correct those? Um, talking about themselves in third person, um, I wouldn't recommend. Um, um, yeah, going, uh, so things like um, skills matrix, um, so you see a lot of CVs with people who've got a list of 10 skills and then they rate themselves from zero to 10 in their ability within that particular skill. And, um, I think that's, um, yeah, people probably won't give that, that something like that, that much airtime because again, until they've, they've screened it themselves. And I'm not really talking about recruiting here. I'm talking more about the actual company where you're going to be working. You know, if, if you say that you, you're a, a nine out of 10 with JavaScript on the CV, then that doesn't mean that much in reality, because if anything, it just means that they're going to probably expect a lot of you. Um, and actually no one's really established, established that in practice. So I'd probably avoid doing those and, and focus more on what we've what we said about problem solution outcome, mention the technologies you've used, and then the the deeper dive into to what extent you know those technologies will come at the interview stage anyway. Um, I definitely recommend having something about you um, as a person on there um, to make the CV um, as human as possible. Um, because again, people who are reviewing CVs may be reviewing lots at a time and you do need to stand out. Um, you don't need to put anything on there about being a magician if you're not a magician or, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that you think you need to do to stand out. But <laughs> just something something human about you and what you're interested in doing, what makes you kick outside of work, um, I think is, is, is definitely good to have. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've had some annoying candidates. What's the sort of annoying things that they do that, that really – irritate you and irritate the client um ooh, it's interesting i think what, what one thing you see uh, one thing you see on linkedin is you see people who someone's posted a job it might be a company it might be by a recruiter and in the comments you'll get a number of people who say i'm interested um and which is wonderful and it's nice to hear people are interested um, genuinely, but that isn't the way of getting someone to um, come back to you about a job. 
um, the way of getting someone to come back to you about a job is, is is following what they've said, whether they've said apply for the the job via the link or send me a message or send me an email with your CV. Follow those steps to start off with to show that you've you've read the message, you've you've yeah absorbed it, and that you've um, responded to it in the right way. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it is a it is a market where there's there's a lot of people. Um, available and and job application numbers are high so for those reasons you need to um you need to really try and follow that process to give yourself the best chance from from the outset um i I think if you've built up a relationship with a recruiter already then you can definitely um and i highly recommend you know ringing them when you see them advertising a job that's suitable no harm in that whatsoever um so from the other point of view what do clients do that's really irritating? <laughs> um, you're going to get me in trouble now. No, what what do they do? Um, I think, yeah, I think g- generic job specs um, are, are frustrating. Um, when you can see that they've clearly been sort of copied and pasted from old documents or they've got one for a software engineer and a recruiter for a tester and they change a few words but you can still see that actually this document was for something else previously um i think they need employers need need to ensure that they um present something that is going to really spike someone's interest and it isn't just a shopping list it's really easy when you're when you need to hire for someone just to write down what you need but actually you need to think about how you're going to position this in such a way that you're going to get the best people interested because if you want the best people then it needs to be you need to sell you need to sell it to them um so what's the company like to work for um how is this role going to suit the applicant uh rather than just saying you need 5 years experience of x x x x and x um okay so that's fine if that's what you need but um what are the benefits to the person and, and don't just list list the company benefits fine but think about the other reasons why someone might want to work there um i think things like um uh, work for us pages on websites are a great thing and um a lot of companies do things like a day in the life um i think those are a great way of showing people um from the employee perspective um what the company might be like or what that job might end up looking like if you if you ended up getting it i did a big recruitment project for a company a retailer a few years ago and they had a great day in the life um diary and i sent it to all the people who were applying and that was a really good way of of getting them to understand what that job might end up being like when i first started job hunting many many years ago um, one of the recommendations was to research the company, know more about the company themselves before you go into the interview. Does that still hold true to the same extent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, nowadays there's more and more information available at your fingertips on um, that company, whether it be their financial performance, whether that be their, their headcount growth, um, whether they've had any backing from venture capitalists, um what you know what round of funding they're at or um what uh relationships they've got with third party um software providers what projects they've won recently 
Um, if you can go into a call with a prospective employer with um, information on any of those subjects, then you're already going to be onto a head start because it shows you're taking it seriously. And again, I completely understand from a sort of candidate's perspective, if they're interviewing for multiple jobs, then um, all these things do take time. Um, and mm -hmm. until you've actually interview, you don't know how interested you're going to be in that job anyway. But I would say that if you've taken the time to if you're taking the time to spend an hour on the phone with someone, then make sure you go into it prepared yeah. and understanding who that company are. And there's nothing worse than getting feedback from um, a, a company to suggest that the candidate didn't wasn't able to answer basic questions about what business line the company were in. Um, that's just um, lazy, really, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... Interesting little question for you. Have you had any how weird requests from clients? Something that's been totally left field and you've thought, what on earth? I think, well, so weird. I mean, definitely kind of like multi-skilled um, candidates. When, when I say multi-skilled, I mean someone who could do sort of not just one or two jobs, maybe three or four or even five. And you, you, you'll get that probably more with the smaller companies who have got um yeah you know if you work for a small company you probably understand that tasks might be a bit broader than working for a large organization but uh, you, you get i've seen job specs where they want someone who can do their you know the front end development um build up their um, quality capability and do some do some support uh, do some customer support and you know answer tickets and things and you think crikey like <laughs> i'm gonna have to try and sell this to someone um that's gonna be really <laughs> difficult so yeah that's that's the weird i'm trying to think of anything else really um yeah i think there's, there's often um i do often gulp when i see a, a job spec um and have to then sort of talk to the company and try and educate them on how realistic it is that they're going to find that person, whether that be the, the salary versus the the job spec or, or just the actual spec itself. Um, I think sometimes companies um, go to the market without having any knowledge of the market, if that makes sense. Um, again, probably more relevant to a company who um, have a lower turnover of staff or just a sort of smaller business. But if they haven't hired for six months, two years, then they may well sort of come to the market with a job that isn't sort of fit for the for, for where we are at the moment with salary or or with skills. Um so that that happens. That that does happen fairly often. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have an awkward conversation. Then you have to have an awkward conversation and then it, and then it and then it comes down to and that's where it becomes quite difficult for for someone in my position because if they don't it depends it depends on my level of relationship with that company to what extent they'll um value and absorb what i've said because you know to be frank there's a lot of recruiters out there so if if they haven't got a strong relationship with me and i say to them well you know i with respect you know i think paying that salary you're just not going to find anyone or i don't think it's realistic what you're asking for or whatever it might be, um, if they don't really kind of, if I haven't got the strongest relationships, then they'll probably 
choose to sort of go elsewhere and, and ask another recruit the same question, he may well give them the same answer. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's that's where it benefits companies to use a supplier that they can trust um, and that they think really understands what they're trying to do. And, you know, it hasn't just got their own interests at heart, it has actually got the company's and the candidate's interests at heart as well. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking along those lines, the way that some recruiters work certainly used to be very common in uh, in the early days that you'd get an email from a recruiter or a message about a side skill. So I'd quite often get one saying, we've got a fantastic DBA role. Are you interested? Mm. And it's like, because I'd mentioned I'd worked on an Oracle system. Yeah. 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 I've found that that's happening less nowadays, and I've never had a message like that from you, which is interesting. Um, but I'm still seeing people complaining about it on social media. Um, why is that still happening, and and what do you do so that you don't do it? Well, I can't. I, yeah, I'm, it's nice to hear that um, I've never seen one of those, Brian. But I can't promise that I've never hit um, a candidate with. Um, a job requirement that wasn't completely relevant for them. Um, I think, first of all, the the nature of technology recruitment means that there's a lot of there is a lot of jargon involved, um, and we do we do search for people based on skills. So, on occasion, that might mean that someone gets an email about something which isn't wholly relevant. Um, I think the technologies that recruiters use has moved on so much that um, it's a lot more intelligent than it used to be uh, in terms of how we can do our searches. We do Boolean searches a lot of the time on CVs where we write long search strings with various different skills and technologies in, and then it, it brings us back a result of candidates. Um, we, we'll do that in LinkedIn. We'll do that on um, on the internet job boards, the likes of Read, CW Jobs, Total Jobs, Monster, where you can register your CV indeed. And then we'll do it on our own database as well. So um, most recruiters will still use that practice to um, bring back a list of results. Um, and the, but the, I think that yeah, the, the best recruiters um, use a much more um, targeted and strategic system than that. They will use their own coding um, method so that if they speak with um, a head of quality um, who's got skills in, um, you know, uh, building a test automation practice, then they might code that person with head of quality and automation. And then when they get a job like that, then they'll search on those two things and it'll bring them back a result of 20 people and then they'll send those 20 people a message. That's a way of um, basically manually screening each candidate and defining them as a certain profile of candidate based on your conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Rather than just based on the words on the CV, so that's how I, I think, yeah, nine point nine times out of ten, that's how I avoid doing that. Is that the people that I reach out to are ones that I've already pre-qualified and and um, uh, defined in a certain way. Great. Um, now there's there's sort of two sides to the um, 
job market, one being the permanent jobs, permanent roles, and the other being contract roles. Um, and IR35 gets mentioned an awful lot. Um, it's been around for a lot of years, but it's evolved. Um, so do you want to just give a sort of pricey of how contract roles and IR35 tends to work compared to a permanent roles? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So R35 is, um, is a, um, an inland revenue is it, is the tax rule basically. And it's all to do with, it's all to do with, um, deemed employment. Um, so if we go back to, um, 10 years ago, um, it's still the same as now in that contractors, broadly speaking, can operate in two ways. They can operate through a limited company or they can operate through an umbrella company. Um, what's changed is that the, the liability for um, someone who falls foul of the IR35 regulations now falls on the fee payer. Um, and the fee payer is the the person who ultimately uses that contractor. That's the 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 company, the end user, whereas it used to fall on the contractor. But now, because the um, I thirty five implications fall on the fee payer, who are the larger and the largest entity in the chain, um, and have the most money, they have the most to lose. Um, so if they have a, a group of 10 contractors um, and those contractors are um, assumed to be operating um, actually in the same way that their permanent staff are, then they may have they may well then have um, a bill to pay on the the tax and national insurance contributions that those people should have made. Um, so people operate through limited companies as, um, working outside of IR35, uh, outside of the regulations. Um, and to do that, they need to establish that they're not under the supervision, direction and control of the end customer, that they are basically providing service rather than being uh, another bum on a seat. Um, because if they're a bum on a seat, there is, they, they should be the same as an employee and pay the same tax and national insurance contributions as any employee. Um, so they don't pay tax via uh, pay as you earn, they pay tax via their, their business and they'll choose to do that in a few ways, but they'll, they'll probably be a director and pay themselves a low salary and then take dividends, which means that they pay less tax than someone who works inside of IR35 through an umbrella company, because the umbrella company will make those, um, deductions on behalf of the contractor, um, if you work through an umbrella company, you'll be paying the same tax and national insurance contributions as you would do if you're a permanent employee. The only difference being that you're a temporary because you're on a contract. Okay. So what's the market like when it comes to inside IR35 and outside IR35? I would guess that most companies would be paranoid about their tax liability. Yeah, I'm definitely paranoid about it, but I think um, it's shifted since it came into came into um, into force because there's more awareness now in the, in the market on um, on how it works, 
and not how you can get around it because it's not about getting around it but how you can position your your projects in such a way that allows you to engage with people in a um, an outside IF35 determination because the reality is that that's how most contractors want to operate because it's tax efficient for them and they feel that if they're not getting the benefits of being permanent employees then why should they pay tax um, at the same levels as those people which I, I tend to agree with um, you know they get no holiday pay no sick pay uh, etc mm -hmm. yeah so so companies um yeah it's 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 matured i think i would say that um companies know a lot more about it now um and if they're comfortable working with a contractor who has a lot more control over their work and how they work and where they work um and what equipment they use to do their work then they should be able to engage with them in an outside determination which will make it cheaper for them because a contractor will probably ask for less money because they'll take home a higher proportion of what they're getting paid. Whereas in the inside scenario, um, the contractor's expectations on pay will be a lot higher because they'll be paying a lot more tax on the money that they earn, which makes it ultimately more expensive for the end customer. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, something that you've been mentioning all the way through, and you mentioned right at the start, is the, the concept of quality engineering and being an engineering profession. Um, Paul Gerard, I don't know if you've come across it, is yeah. uh, he's trying to set up uh, an institute, a chartered institute for test engineers, um, where you can actually be a, a chartered testing engineer. Do you think that's a good idea? I think it is. I think I think the more um, I think certifications, um, qualifications are a, a good thing. Um, Again, when I first started, ICEB was um, the ICEB Foundation. You're showing um, your age now, calling it ICEB. I know, I know. <laughs> it is now, of course, ISTQB. Yeah. Um, but it was called ICEB um, in in the mid-noughties, and um, that at the time, I think that you know that held some weight, and people um, saw that as a, as a as a tick to say this person's gone through a level of training um, or qualification in their chosen profession. But I think that has, over the, over the years, even with its um, change of name, and I'm sure the test has changed lots in that time as well, um, it's yeah, decreased in its relevancy. Um, so I think that the industry does need something else, definitely. Um, yeah. Because, uh, if you, if you, again, if you, if you compare to software engineers, which often happens, software engineers are often defined by their ability to code, which can be um, can be assessed more easily via um, testing um, than um, the skills of a quality engineer can be tested, which mm -hmm. is probably more subjective, more nuanced than, than it is for an engineer. And you just answered one of my other questions, which is how oh. relevant is size TQB these days? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you still see it on CVs, um, but I would, I would imagine that even people who have got it probably don't always put that on their CV anymore because it isn't it isn't that relevant in all honesty. I think if you're if you're starting out, um, then it's definitely not a bad thing to do. Um, and it shows it shows willing someone's done something extra extra 
curriculum something outside of work um to um cement their skills and experience more so that's got to be considered a good thing but there's probably other ways now of um of illustrating your um your skills than than just that mm-hmm. and what you mentioned there about what paul jarrett's doing that sounds great um talking about the outside work stuff uh for cementing your your skills um do you think that bcs is relevant yeah definitely um again any kind of like um membership organization um community group uh, that offers training support guidance is is good to have um i think for the testers definitely um the ministry of testing is um one of if not the the biggest kind of community group within not well, it's not uh, it's not the only one but it's definitely one of the biggest community groups that we have and they do lots of good stuff that testers can get involved with um so i'd, I'd definitely recommend looking them up um going to some of their events um they've got membership things as well so yeah looking into them would be a good idea mm-hmm. and of course software testing the scottish testing group Another. There we go. Absolutely. Sorry, I completely forgot about software testing group. That's another good, good avenue. I'm sure. Um, I think this has been a really good conversation. Very useful. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find it useful. So, um, just to wrap up, I usually ask my guests for book recommendations. What people should be reading, or what they're reading at this point in time. So, what are yours? The Life and Times of Aston Villa Football Club. No, um, I'm joking. I've, I've done that already. Um, I've just, I've just read. Um, I say just read. I finished at the end of last year. Surrounded by idiots. Um, by um, I just remember his first name, Thomas Erickson, which is a great book. Um, mm-hmm. All about um, behaviours. It's it's about um, leadership. Basically, it's about a different types of people that you'll come into contact with um and i think it's a great way of trying to understand and accept um the different personality types within um within any within any team or within any family actually and then how to deal with those people um because they are of course not idiots um despite what the book uh, title suggests it's it's actually about understanding that everyone is different and they can bring a lot of different um, benefits to whatever setting that you, you come into contact with, with them in. So it's really good. I really enjoyed it actually. Yeah. I've recommended it to a few people and it's not that long either, which is good. <laughs> that's a great recommendation. That's actually on my wish list. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your uh, help and information. This has been very good very informative i've really enjoyed it yeah thanks a lot for having me so thank you to matt and thank you for listening check out the show notes for links to matt and kiwi babble and join us next time on quality blether for more quality conversations about quality